Well, thanks again for being in at Grace. Uh, we're excited to have you here. I, I'm really pumped today, Palm Sunday. I came out here first service, and I said, it's Palm Sunday. It's just one week until Christmas. <laughs> so if you're out in the atrium and you heard people say Merry Christmas to me, that's it. They're just reminding me of my incompetence of even getting a sermon going here. So, yeah, next week, Easter, we're excited about it. If you didn't catch it, what time Saturday service? Wow, that was pretty good. You guys are paying attention. Yeah, normal service times on Sunday, Saturday, 6 o'clock. Hope to see you then. And again, we're, we're really pounding this, if you haven't noticed, but we want you to go to ohiograce.com, update your family information. Even if you think we already got your information, we need your information in a new database. If you do that, that'd be great. Or you could go to ohiograce.com forward slash contact hyphen update if you're really advanced. You could just go straight that way. So anyway, love, love for you to do that. We just want to make sure that we're connected with every, every family as we make this transition. God has really blessed us with growth and, and every, every single person is very important to us and we're just excited at see what God's doing here. We're going to wrap up a series today. It's called Fight and it's called Fight as a reminder to us that great relationships don't happen by accident. We have to work for them, strive for them, be proactive, be intentional, make it happen, put in the effort. And that's the way it is for all our relationships, especially uh, our most important human relationship, which is marriage. Today, we are talking about maybe the most controversial thing as far as marriage goes in Scripture. And that is we're going to see what the Bible has to say about divorce. And the reason that's controversial is because people have a lot of different views. But the, the issue is that divorce has probably touched the lives of every single person here through family and friends. Many of you have been through divorce and the heartache of that, not something that you wanted to happen. Some of you are maybe going through that right now. Others have experienced divorce close up and personal uh, when you were a child and saw your parents split and, and the heartache that, that comes along with that, it, or maybe you just know somebody, it doesn't really matter wherever you're at on this issue, I want you to, to know something before we dive in here, that God has to say something about it, We're, it's important for us to talk about what, what scripture has to say about it, but I also want you to know that, that I'm not coming at this topic in a, in a judgmental kind of a way. Hey, I know life is messy. Everybody has got different circumstances. Understand all that. And, uh, and God loves us in spite. We're all flawed. We're all messed up. God loves us in spite of that. But it's important for us to look to see what God has to say about marriage and even divorce. So we, so we can be guided in our decisions in life. So we're going to dive in. On this issue. And when we do, I want us to really hone in on just two things. One is God's heart for marriage, and the second is God's heart for you. God designed marriage, and in His design, and even when we're talking about divorce along with marriage, we see God's heart through and through all, all about this topic. Some of you know because I've been mentioning it, that uh, my daughter's getting married to Calvin Spriggs in 13 days. 
and it's been on my mind. So that's coming. I, I got to tell you, I don't even know that I would be able to do this, except for I'm reminded marriage is God's idea. Marriage is a good thing. God says it's a good thing. God invented it. It's God's intention for most people. And so that, that's what makes me okay with it. God designed marriage from the very beginning. We actually talked a little bit about this last Sunday, but right back there in the garden, right on day one, God, in, he initiates, institutes marriage. As a matter of fact, Paul, there's a key verse, Genesis 2.24, that Paul quotes, looked at that last time, and today we're going to look at a passage of scripture where Jesus himself quotes this same verse, Genesis 2.24, and because of that, it's probably good for us to read it and uh, get connected to that and make sure that, that we understand exactly what, what's there because it's a foundation. It's a foundational, the foundation of marriage, and it's in Genesis 2.24. And here's what it says. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, or joined to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And then it goes on in the next verse, in verse 25, to say, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so there we have it. In the garden, day one of man and woman, marriage is instituted. And as we look at that, we, we notice that the word join or cleave or united, that word really implies a covenant. Uh, a covenant of marriage vows to be with each other. But the problem is, as, as we get in today, although I think it's been true all throughout human history, there are two competing visions for marriage. And it has everything to do with the type of relationship that we have in marriage. And so some people see marriage from a consumer relationship mindset. Now, there's nothing wrong with some consumer relationships. We all get that. One of my favorite stores, Rural King, just a mile away, right? I love Rural King. How many like, like Rural King? Yeah, Rural King. Yeah, great store. So love Rural King. I go in there. I find something I like. I buy it. I give the money. They're happy. I'm happy. It's a win-win consumer relationship. If I find a better price and want to drive the extra uh, miles, I can go to Walmart and maybe beat that price, and everybody gets that. You know, that's what... That's, we understand consumer relationships. But a consumer relationship does not drive our personal relationships. For example, when, when Carissa and her siblings were young, I never walked up to their room one day and said, you know, kids, I've been thinking. Um, this relationship really isn't working out. I want you to know it's not you, it's me. And I've been hanging around the neighbor kids, and we seem to really connect. And, and so I don't know really how to tell you this. Again, it's not your fault, but uh, you're out, they're in. That, that's a consumer mindset. We don't do that with relationships with our kids, and we should not be thinking that way with our relationship with our spouse. Now, the other type of relationship, the other worldview, the other mindset is a covenant relationship. That's what the word in Genesis 2.24 implies. 
a covenant relationship. And I got to tell you, because I got marriage on the brain, this is coming up in a couple weeks, I've been thinking a lot about marriages and vows, and a lot. sometimes people write their own vows, which can be very cool. But on another sense, sometimes I don't like it. Because sometimes couples write their vows and they leave out this, the covenant aspect of the relationship. And here's what I mean by that. You can stand up in front of the world and you could declare your love for this person that you're marrying... That does not imply a covenant relationship because you're just talking about the present. A covenant relationship in a vow, it's saying this. I not only love you today, I promise to love you 50 years from today. That's the covenant aspect. The covenant, you're making a promise, a vow to cherish and it always projects into the future. That's what the covenant part of it is all about. So, so vows that don't include that and don't include the whole God aspect of that, you know, I, I don't really like as much. God's plan for marriage, his original intent is permanence. And that is part of that covenant relationship and that should be expressed in a marriage. Now, when you raise that kind of a question, if God's idea intent, his original intent for marriage is permanence in the relationship, then the question today and the question has always been since that day in the garden, what can end that? When is it permissible to undo a marriage? When can that happen? And, that, and, and even when we answer that question, we see God's heart for marriage. And so we're going to look at a passage of scripture where Jesus answers this question. But before we get there, I need to tell you the backstory of what's happening. So when we read how this interchange goes with Jesus, we understand how everybody's thinking in the first, in the first century because of the Old Testament law that they're familiar with. So you ready for this? Okay, you're ready. So we know that Jesus arrives on the scene in the first century. He's, he's teaching about the law, he's teaching with authority, he's teaching in a, in a new way, which is downplaying the traditions that people have heaped up on the law and really getting back to the core of the law, the Old Testament law. And so as he's doing that, a time in his ministry comes up, this is, his ministry is in full swing at this time, and what's happening just before this is John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, the one who baptized Jesus, he has been imprisoned and killed because he has spoken out on casual remarriage and divorce. So he's been eliminated. He's been killed because of that issue. To make matters worse, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they know that there's a controversy in Israel. And, they, and, and there has been a controversy for hundreds of years, actually 1,400 years, about one verse in the law. And this was hotly debated, and people were very connected to their interpretation of how this goes because the way you see this verse impacts people then just like it would today because people have made life decisions based on how they interpreted this one verse and what that verse meant. And so basically, at the time of Christ, there are two main schools of thought regarding this one verse. 
in the Old Testament. Now, where the verse is, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And it's the place in the Bible, it's the first time in the Bible divorce is ever mentioned. And we should stop and read that. Deuteronomy chapter 24 in the law, beginning with verse 1. And actually, I'll just do verse 1 because that's the controversy. But it says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and then there's a comma, and then he goes in with the, the law goes into a very elaborate statement that's basically limiting remarriage under certain unusual circumstances after a divorce has happened. That this person, when he divorces his wife, he, and, and then she leaves his house, gets married to somebody else, and somehow that marriage ends with either divorce or death, then that guy can't remarry her, and all that is really a protection for the spouse because if he wants to remarry, re, remarry her after he divorced her, there's too many ways that he can interfere with their relationship, so then that was against the law, protection for the woman in a patriarchal society. But anyway, that's not what they're arguing about. What everybody's been arguing about is verse 1 that I just read. And it's like, okay, first time this has been mentioned, if divorce is allowed, this is saying that it's allowed. And the question is, exactly what does he mean by she, disple- she loses favor in his eyes because he finds some indecency? All right. So now, at the time of Christ, there's two major schools of thought on interpreting this verse. And everybody has lined up with one or the other. One is called the house of Hillel. Hillel, famous rabbi, even today, from he died in the first century. He actually died about 20 years before Christ is talking in Matthew 19 is where we're heading. So before this conversation, 20 years earlier, Hillel has died. He's got this whole school of biblical interpretation. And he says... What's happening here in Deuteronomy 24 is basically a man could divorce his wife for just about any reason. He's still a famous rabbi in Jewish circles today. And then he lists out about three over 300 reasons as to what justifies a divorce. And when you have that many reasons, it gets pretty loose, right? For example, in that list that we still have, it says, if if your wife burns the bread, you can divorce her. If she argues with you and somebody can hear her outside your home, you can divorce her. If you argue with her and she criticizes your parents, you can divorce her. If you fall out of love with her, you can divorce her. If you fall in love with somebody else, you can divorce her. So basically, you can very loose. You know, this this is the the liberal interpretation of the law. This is the MSNBC, you know, kind of interpretation <laughs> of the law. And so that's that's the way Hillel's going. And now he has just passed away, but he has all these followers, very influential. Now, in opposition to that is the school of Shammai. Shammai has died even more recently than than Hillel has during Jesus' lifetime. And Shammai, he's he's the Fox News guy. He's, He's the more conservative guy. And he says, no, no, we're totally missing it. This indecency is referring to sexual sin. There's only one, not 300, there's only one reason to divorce your wife, and that is because of a sexual sin. That's it. 
So these guys are competing. Everybody, all the Jewish people of the first century, because these guys are contemporaneous with the first century, they're all on one side or the other, and they're all deeply ingrained because people in their family, if not them themselves, have made decisions based on these two schools of thought. And now Jesus is on the scene teaching with authority, and, and they want to discredit him. So the Pharisees come in public to ask Jesus a public question, really to challenge Jesus, and it's a no-win answer. If Jesus says, no, Hillel's right, then the, the Shammai people are offended and they're bummed out, so half of his falling, a little less than half probably, is gone. If he says, no, Shammai's right, then all the Hillel people, they're offended. Basically, no matter what he says, he's probably going to get himself in trouble with the authorities. And if he deviates at all by questioning whether people should ever get divorced, well, now he's disagreeing with Moses because he wrote the law. So there's four different ways that Jesus is in trouble on this. It's a no-win question. It's a question that, that nobody would typically answer if they wanted to keep people's popularity. But Jesus wasn't here to be popular. Jesus was here to give us truth. And so he answers the question, and we can pick it up in Matthew chapter 19. That's the backstory, beginning in verse 1. We ready? All right, five of us are ready. We'll wait just for a moment. All right, Matthew chapter 19, beginning with verse 1. Here's how it goes. And when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Okay, so you got the crowds. The stage is set because they want to ask this question of him publicly to, to get him in trouble, you know, to decrease his popularity or to undermine his teaching and his ministry. Verse 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? They're saying, is Hillel right? By the way, school of Hillel, school of Shammai, any reason, only one reason. Who do you think is more popular? Which is the most popular school in the first century? Hillel, right. Get divorced for any reason. That's what's going on. So they, they just land right on that. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And then Jesus answers it. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What? Therefore, God has joined together. Let no man separate. We say that last one at weddings a lot. So Jesus, this is actually a slam on the Pharisees. They were experts in the law. A lot of them had the whole first five books of the Bible memorized. And Jesus says, oh, you're asking about divorce and remarriage. You go, oh, you haven't read Genesis chapter 2, the foundational verse on marriage. You missed that? What are you thinking? And of course, they don't like that. They push back. But what Jesus is saying, hey, God's original intent is one man for a woman for a lifetime. Why, why are you trying to figure out how to mess that up? They say, no, no, we're not talking about Genesis 2. We're talking about Deuteronomy 24. We'll pick it up there. Verse 7. They said to him, why then... Did Moses command to give 
her a certificate of divorce and send her away. And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So here Jesus says, hey, here's God's original intent. And they say, well, what about what Moses wrote? And then he says, well, Moses didn't command you to divorce. That was, there was no command. Moses permitted divorce inside the law, although this is really a passage talking about remarriage. He permitted that because your heart's, because of sin, because of the fallenness of the world, because of the brokenness around us. And then Jesus goes on to say, out on a limb, slam dunk, nails it, says, but I'm teaching you, I say to you now, there's only one reason. And that is sexual immorality. And then he, he goes on to say, even stricter than Shammai, he says, and by the way, if you divorce your wife wrongly and you go on to marry somebody else, you're committing adultery when you, that, that day when you do that. And so that's what's happening. Well, when he says this, he comes to the right of Shammai. They're shocked. They're like, you got to be kidding me. Wow. For, for the Pharisees, like, oh, we were hoping he would make a blunder like this. First of all, he goes back to Genesis and we can tell, oh, you don't go by Moses then. She says, no, we, we go by Moses. And then he nails it down. And, and we know they're shocked because the disciples are shocked. The disciples, we see their reaction. They're like, you got to be kidding me. This can't be the answer. If this is the answer, it'd be better that we didn't even get married. That, that's in verse 10. Check it out. He says, the disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. Wow. The disciples do not understand God's heart for marriage, do they? Do they? No. That, that wasn't even rhetorical. The disciples do not understand God's heart for marriage, do they? No. no. They're going, hey, well, if you can't just divorce your wife anytime you want, it's better not to even do marriage. Why put yourself into that position? They completely misunderstand what God is saying about marriage and how important the covenant relationship within marriage is. When the disciples say that, then Jesus goes on to say a few things. Basically, he talks about eunuchs and everybody's like, what's that all about? But basically what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, hey, some people are born, maybe there's an abnormality or something, and they, they're not wired up for marriage. And he says, that's okay. They don't get married. That's good. Some people... They, because of an injustice or something that's happened to them, they no longer have the desire to be married. Jesus says, that's okay. He says, sometimes people say, hey, they have the gift of singleness, and they say, you know what? I'm going to just forego marriage. I can cover more ground, do things, and get things done for the kingdom faster if I don't have to provide for a wife and children. And, and God says, okay. As a matter of fact, God, in the New Testament, singleness is, is held in high regard for people who want to you know, do more for the kingdom. It's not required, but it's a good thing. Singleness is, is held up as a good thing, a gift. So what's going on here is, is the disciples, they missed the heart of God for this topic 
and then Jesus nails it and tells them exactly what's going on. Now, there is one other passage in Scripture that gives us another reason for divorce. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, the context there is simply this. This is first century. He's writing Corinth, a very pagan city, where now the gospel is spread and some people have become believers. So pagan city that there's temple prostitutes. Part of religion was sexual immorality. It was a messed up place. And there are believers living there, part of the church. And then they start thinking, and they're, they became believers, but their spouses didn't. And they realize this is a terrible situation. And so they're trying to figure that out. And then they start thinking, maybe I should divorce for spiritual reasons. Because... Man, my, my spouse is a pagan, and what's going to happen to the kids? And this is, you know, maybe God would want me to get divorced. And Paul writes and instructs them in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and says, No, if you're married to a non-believer and they agree to, to be with you, you stay with them. You do not leave. Marriage is a covenant. But, he says, if because you're a believer, they abandon you, they leave you, they just leave you high and dry and just go on with their life that you're not bound in such circumstance. What he's saying there is you don't have to stay married to the person that abandons you and goes on with their life. You can be divorced and go on with your life as well. So sexual immorality and being abandoned in the context by a non, specifically what it says, by a non-believer. So that's what's going on there. That's what God is saying uh, about divorce. Now, if that, and really... The whole thrust of all this is just to protect the covenant relationship of marriage because it's so dear to God's heart. So if that's God's heart for marriage, the next thing that I want us to see through all this, because for some that will sound harsh, is I want you to see God's heart for you. How God loves you through all of this. Whether you're married, single, divorced, or Divorced and remarried, God loves you, God cares about you, God wants a relationship with you, and God has a plan for your life. That's what Scripture's telling us. I know sometimes, I actually met, it just happened to turn out that way, last Wednesday with a group of people in our divorce care class, which is a great group of people, uh, just neat interacting with them. I usually do that one, one time during their 13-week series as that recycles over and over and uh and i know sometimes people have the question of like well if i've been divorced and you know how does god see me or how does the church see me in light of what the bible says about that you know and what i'm telling you is god loves you how, do, how does god see check this out in jeremiah 3 8 god is speaking and he's talking about his relationship with Israel and, and, and we know the Bible says God hates divorce and stuff like that but I want you to see Jeremiah 3 8 it starts out this way and I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce and then it goes on, and this is a judgment on Israel because they've drifted from God, and all this stuff is going on. But I want you to know, in the Old Testament, Israel is sort of related as, as 
the wife of God, just in, in a metaphorical kind of way. And in the New Testament, the church is called the bride of Christ. And so you have this one place in the Old Testament where, where God says, you know, I had to give you a bill of, give Israel a bill of divorce and, and send her away. I, I just want to say that to, to make this point. If, if I, and I'm not saying this, but if I were to say right now, hey, if you've been divorced, stand up in this crowd. And God was in the crowd. God would stand up. God puts himself in the class of divorce. God has done that in his own right. And, and by the way, God is sinless. God's never done anything wrong. And even God puts himself into this category. And so what I, want, what I just want you to see is, is maybe you come from a church background where if you've been through something like this, that that's kind of marked you for life and you don't feel like you can get rid of that. And that's... A, you, know, you, you got a D on your clothes, and you know it's just a bad deal. That's, that's not God's heart for you. If you're divorced, we offer the same love, acceptance to you that God offers you. And we also have resources. We want to help you, counseling, divorce care, the, the different things that we have. And um, we want you to be a part of our church family. And, and here's what else I want you to see. If you look through the Bible, you see God's heart for people no matter what they've done. We, we just talked about Israel. One of the most famous people in the Old Testament in regards to Israel, probably the most famous person, is King David. David was Israel's greatest king. Do you remember what he went through? David, Israel's greatest king, at the height of his power, he decides as they're in, in a conflict and so there's a war going on, he decides to stay back in Jerusalem. And he's hanging out, and he's on the roof of, of, of his castle. And what David is engaging in is sort of like, it's like pornography from 2,000 years ago. I mean, he's, he's up on his rooftop. It's the highest building in the city. And he's looking down, and there's a woman down who, who normally people bathe in their courtyard. And so, but there would be screens and trees and, and and part of the house that would screen that off. But he's on the, the, the palace roof. So he can just look right down into the courtyard. And he's watching. It's worse than pornography. He's a peeping Tom. He's watching this woman bathe. Well, he's the king. So he ends up finding out who she is. And summoning her to the castle where he seduces her. Before he does that, he finds out. That she's the wife of somebody he knows. As a matter of fact, she's the wife of Uriah, who's one of David's 37 mighty men. The 37 most loyal men to David of anybody in the kingdom. Who's been with David before he was even a king and risked his life for David. That Uriah, who a friend of David's, and he seduces Uriah's wife. Next thing that happens is, Bathsheba gets pregnant. So she sends word to the king, I'm pregnant with your child. David starts into cover-up mode. He figures he sends to the battlefront and he requests that Uriah come and give a report of what's going on the battlefield. But he only does that so Uriah will go home and sleep with his wife and cover up who's really the father of her child. But Uriah comes... But he doesn't sleep with Bathsheba. 
He doesn't think it's right because his men are out there in the field. They're suffering on the battlefield. He doesn't feel like it's right to go into his house and enjoy the comforts of home. So he doesn't sleep with Bathsheba and ends up going back to the battlefield. Well, David seeing that, at that point you would think maybe David would repent or turn to God or try to do it the right thing. Or, or feel some sorrow. But he doesn't do that. David notches it up. And by Uriah's own trusted hand, he sends a message to Joab, the commander of the army, that basically says, hey, when the battle gets real tight, real hot, you know, when, it, when it's looking real bad, put Uriah up in the front of the fiercest part of the battle. And when the battle's raging, everybody else pull back so the enemy will kill Uriah. It's murder. David has Uriah murdered. And then, as soon as that has happened, David quickly summons Bathsheba, marries her to cover up the fact that they have this illicit affair. The baby ends up dying at childbirth. And this messed up, right? And David still doesn't get it. Finally, God sends a prophet, Nathan who goes to David and tells David a story. Hey, king, here, here's what happened. Uh, there's this rich guy who has thousands of sheep, and he noticed his neighbor, who was a poor guy, had one flawless sheep. And that guy loved that sheep. That was his only possession. He loved that sheep so much. That sheep was like a household pet. I mean, he, that, that sheep was everything to this guy. Well, the rich guy who had a thousand went and took the sheep from that man, stole it. And David is incensed. David's like, bring that, Nathan, bring that man here. He's going to die. We have justice in Israel. I'm going to kill that guy. And what's Nathan say? You're the guy. You did this. You did worse than this. And finally... David understands the depths of sin. And I know some of you have been through a lot of stuff in your life. Some of you have been through divorce and it was messed up. Probably nobody has experienced a story that jacked up, right? Where it's had an affair, had a child, tried to cover it up, didn't work, started with being a porn peeping Tom guy, all that leads into this stuff, an illicit pregnancy, and then finally murder in order to cover it up. And if, that's, if you've been through worse than that, please don't raise your hand. <laughs> we, we get it. It's mess. Life is messy. And some people say, where's the justice in that? That's not right. What about Uriah? Can you imagine Uriah? You know, we don't talk about the innocent person maybe a lot. What about Uriah? He's standing next to God in heaven and he sees all this playing out. And he sees what happened. And he's like, God, that's messed up. He's got my wife. He had me killed. This is wrong. I protected that man for decades. I trusted him. I, I bled for him. Where's the justice, God? I don't know what God would say to Uriah, but I know what he could say. 
You could say to Uriah, Uriah, there's justice. David's sin, like anyone's sin, will be punished. It'll either be punished by spending an eternity in hell or it'll be paid for by my son on the cross of Calvary. We're in Matthew chapter 19. Two chapters later, chapter 21, we find Jesus shortly after this time riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, the Son of God, entering in on what we call Palm Sunday, what we celebrate today, to shouts of acclaim. And everybody's rejoicing. And less than a week later, he's tortured to death voluntarily for your sins, my sins, David's sins, and even Uriah's sins, which had nothing to do with divorce or anything else. You see, God offers grace and forgiveness for broken people living in a broken world. And for the innocent party, God offers the grace of healing that you would know there is justice that God loves you. And that's not the way God designed the world to work. But one day, we're coming back to that. A world without brokenness. It's just a matter of time. And so maybe you're here feeling like, wow, I have been through some stuff. Kevin, you, if you only knew my story. I'm here to tell you, God's grace is sufficient. And what's God saying? What does that mean? God's saying, trust me. Come to my grace. You think your story's jacked up? Try me. I redeemed David. I can redeem you. I use David. Because remember what happened with David? David and Bathsheba David and Bathsheba. Later, because David has other wives and other kids, David and Bathsheba go on to have another baby whose name is Solomon. And Solomon goes on to have a child, and his child goes on to have a child, and that guy's child goes on to have a child, and that guy's child goes on to have a child. And pretty soon, what's happening? The Savior is born. Jesus Christ. God didn't have to, but God uses David in his worst moment in his life, and Bathsheba, to start the lineage, the line of David, to bring the Savior of the world. You think your story's jacked up? God's saying, try me. Try me. I can redeem you. I can use you. Most important question in life is just simply, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation? Because he invites all of us into relationship in spite of our sin. If we, and Jesus has died for our sins, paid the penalty for us, but the only way that's accredited to our account 
is when we place all of our trust, all of our eggs are in the Jesus basket, all of our trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. We do that by admitting our sin and placing our trust in Jesus. We can express that in a prayer, just saying, God, I get it. I'm a sinner. Thanks for allowing Jesus to die for me. Come into my life. Help me to live in a way that honors you. And I'd invite you to do that today. We're going to close in prayer, and then Jay's going to come out and lead us in a song. But anytime you express your faith to God, you'll become a child of his forever, no matter what. Let's stand together for prayer. Father God in heaven, we, th we thank you for your goodness, and we pray that uh, for those of us who are believers here, we thank you for your grace that we don't deserve, that you saved us and paid our penalty for sin. And, and even though you shouldn't have done that, we thank you because you're all we have. Thanks for making a way to fix our relationship with you, to reconcile us to you as a holy God. And, and Father, for those who haven't quite made that decision yet, we pray that your spirit would tug on their hearts, that they would see the need, and that they would express that to you even this morning, because there's no better time than now. And just turn to you uh, in trust for forgiveness that they would express that to you now in their own hearts silently as they pray to you, even while we sing. In Christ's name.